Buddhist Geeks, exploring the convergence of Buddhism, technology, and culture. What happens when you combine a thousands-year-old contemplative tradition with exponentially changing technology and an increasingly global and interconnected world? Since 2007, Buddhist Geeks has been striving to come up with answers to this question, and we've only just begun. Over the years, we've recorded hundreds of talks and conversations on the development of Buddhism in the 21st century. These recordings, in the form of our weekly podcast, are downloaded over a million times each year, accounting for several million total downloads. If you've been positively impacted by Buddhist Geeks, we ask that you consider becoming a monthly micro-patron. As little as $2 a month helps us reach important milestones related to the production of the weekly podcast, from scheduling guests to crafting thoughtful questions to recording, editing, and publishing the finished episode. Your support enables us to take the time we need to create something worth listening to. Being a patron is about supporting those things that are most important to you, that you feel have the potential to change the world for the better. Come put your money where your heart is. Patreon.com slash BuddhistGeeks. So I want to talk about imaging and imagination a little bit. It's a complex topic. Um, perhaps I want to bring a little bit more Buddhism uh, into the presentation, uh, but not too much Buddhism, especially not too much historical, or as I like to call it, classical Buddhism, because we uh, live in a time where uh, history is on us, much more than even the future, especially with the new technologies where history is retained forever. If you do something stupid, it ends up on the internet and it's with you forever. It gets replicated in countless servers and there's no way to get rid of it, unless you're probably the president of Google or something. So uh, history is important, but we easily lose our way uh, through the present into a future that is possible. So imagination becomes uh, key. Now, I want to talk about imaging and imagination in the psychological sense and spiritual sense, not in the medical sense of brain imaging. Uh, so uh, to start off, I want to look at three things. Number one, why is imagination important? And the second point, how tradition provides good examples of the process of imagination. And the third point, how we're not quite uh, there with knowing what to do with what's available. And when we say we, I mean in the West, with Buddhism as a practice and with art as another discipline. These two haven't really come together so far. There have been some uh, nice uh, crossings, but nothing spectacular has happened yet, comparable to the Christian art uh, fusion. 
So I'll start with two geeks uh, and their quotes. Carl Sagan said, imagination will often carry us to worlds that never were, but without it, we go nowhere. And Albert Einstein said, knowledge is limited, imagination encircles the world. So these people definitely didn't have a problem with imagination. And in that sense, uh, I don't want to use imagination as something exclusively artistic or aesthetic, but as something that is crucial in every pursuit, in every human challenge, in every inquiry, in every experiment, uh, every discovery. So the first point, Imagination is important because it's a key aspect of practice. Uh, it brings together our various faculties while uh, opening new possibilities for us. Uh, and as it does, it moves us beyond the confines of perception in the narrow sense. Images uh, grasped or created in imagination are not necessarily visual. They are provided by all senses, including purely mental, conceptual images, or even formless images that are mere hints of meaning or direction or possibility. Plus, uh, awakened imagination, uh, which is a uh, cultivated, imagination released from constraints of personal, cultural, and probably even physical conditioning uh, is very, uh, very close to unfettered perception, unfettered awareness. And thus, uh, I believe that imagination is the original uh, psychoactive agent. Uh, it would be, I think, technically called endogenous, uh, internal. Moving on, these are the feet of Buddha. Uh, he wasn't a Nazi, don't worry. Uh, there are many swastikas, but that's before it was a, uh, you know, a symbol of problems. It was actually a symbol of blessings. So there, there's, a, there's an example of an image um, taken and turned into something uh, quite, uh, you know, perhaps even opposite from what it used to be. Um, these feet uh, are very characteristic of the first phase of Buddhist uh, imaginative uh, symbolism. Uh, they represent typically Buddha's birth, the moment where he, you know, laid the little feet on the earth, according to the mythic story that uh, then made seven steps, lotuses blowing under his feet and so on. You can see the lotuses there. And images such as these were the earliest objects of veneration um, by the Buddhist uh, community in India. Later on, we'll see some other examples. So imagination is also important because it's intrinsic to our being. Uh, we don't have to bring it into existence. Even before birth, babies dream in the womb. So before perception comes imagination. Our experience is basically awareness plus imagination plus 
perception. If you want to put it in, in the continuum of great states, is deep sleep, dreaming, and waking. And different approaches in Buddhist practice focus on, on some of these three uh, aspects. Some focus on awareness, like uh, probably Zen and uh, Mahamudra, Dzogchen. Some focus on perception, working with raw experiential sense data. There are many examples of that. And some work with imagination, typically devotional Mahayana and Vajrayana uh, Buddhism. But every Buddhist practice contains or uses all three to some extent. You cannot imagine a uh, spiritual practice without awareness or without perception or without imagination. Right. So it's intrinsic. Now, to be transformative or liberating even, it has to be uh, cultivated with great care and some discernment because it has an immense potential. And this potential easily uh, becomes uh, uh, taken by confusion, uh, taken by reactivity, taken by conditioning. And ultimately, this potential rots into banality. So, especially during the time of enlightenment uh, in the West, imagination was um, for a while contrasted or opposed to, to reason and uh, equated with uh, you know, uh, meaningless, uh, purposeless fantasy. And from that time comes the distrust of both magic myth and also, to some extent, spirituality, uh, giving rise to the so-called secular realm. However, imagination stays with us. A cultivated imagination is, at the very basic level, a willingness to stay with the unknown, with the undefined, and trusting where that staying takes us. It's a little bit uh, trippy in the beginning, uh, not far from mild psychedelic experience, but eventually it becomes a creative pursuit. A creative pursuit not rooted so much in our self-expression as much as in channeling whatever is real uh, that begins to show up in our experience more clearly. In Buddhist tradition, although it's not treated explicitly, imagination sprouts as faith. It's shraddha in Sanskrit. And then bears fruit as a kind of knowing, prajna. It's not a dry, uh, analytical knowing, as sometimes it has been presented. Prajna is much more a very creative, imaginative blast. On the other hand, if we ignore imagination instead of cultivating it, even worse, if we repress it, it causes uh, serious problems, uh, serious issues, and leads not just to stagnation and imbalance, but also sometimes to insanity. So it can be also a uh, health issue, an actual situation to deal with uh, not just uh, spiritually, but it can become pretty bad. 
the function of imagination uh, internally and culturally is to open, uplift, and inspire all. So great works of art, such as this Japanese tantric deity representing uh, lust uh, in its awakened form, engages our senses, also our emotions, and our awareness, um, challenging our conception of what is the nature of, for example, in this case, lust. When this happens, we often become aware of, of, of the contraction that we bring to, to great art, of a kind of reluctance of holding back, right? When you hear a huge masterpiece of music, you go like, <gasps> until you actually let it in. And then you lose sense of time, it takes you out of your space, and you're transported into a different kind of story. Thus, imagination is not only about pointing out some new possibility, but also pointing out the way we are stuck, the contraction and the distraction. So, to practice imagination is to stay with these patterns while opening and stepping into the possibilities. You can't do one without the other, really. So that would be the first point, why it's important. Okay, now, the second point is about traditional records being basically an archive of great examples of the process of creative imagination and giving us many examples, not necessarily to copy or perpetuate, but definitely to emulate. So in classical Buddhism, uh, we don't find a systematic treatment of creative imagination in the sense that we understand it in the West, or an approach for development of it. However, if you just remember the Eightfold Path, the first two uh, components there, um, genuine outlook and genuine aspiration, is one way of translating it, are pretty much about imagination um, as uh, laying down a foundation for an actual path of practice. Now, again, I repeat, imagination or images, it's not just a visual thing. It's the whole six senses, according to the Buddhist tradition uh, of experience. It has not only to do with creating images, but also with dissolving images. So imagination is not just about bringing stuff up. It's also about dissolving. Now, with perception, it's very difficult to dissolve. As you probably know, if you have tried, it requires you know, some pretty extreme um, states and very high levels of energy, uh, sorry, high levels of attention but also of energy. With imagination, however, creation and dissolution are almost effortless. Um, what requires some amount of effort and considerable amount of practice is stabilizing what is created, whether visually or um, auditory or tactile. You can imagine actual tactile events in your body and make it quite vivid. But creating them and dissolving them is 
quite effortless. Um, creating them, you, you just have to remember or think of something happening. And what happens in the next moment is it dissolves. Most Buddhist uh, application of imagination uh, is used for these two aspects. The arising aspect is clarity, and the dissolving aspect is void, or as Shinzen would call it, uh, gone. So it's just gone. In Mahayana especially, awakening is not seen just as uh, becoming sober or, you know, waking up to the brutal uh, reality of impermanence. But also, once the Buddha was awake under the tree, he has gone through seven weeks of actually giving rise to spectacular imaginative creations that were recorded. Uh, this is an illustration of the Buddha uh, giving his Avatamsaka Sutra discourse. According to Mahayana, the first discourse he gave uh, before realizing it's a, perhaps a bit too advanced and then going back to Four Noble Truths. Uh, so uh, the point here being, uh, when you wake up, it's just the beginning to be actually fully awake. Samyak Sambuddha means to also liberate and uh, liberate and unleash a translucent imagination that is not the confused kind of reality escaping fantasy but is reality reflecting wisdom that serves whatever the situation is at hand. And when we look at the Buddha's activity uh, as recorded in the earliest scriptures known as the Pali Canon, then we can see in the dialogue situation he was always very flexible with metaphors and similes and allegories and uh, high dose of biting humor. Uh, even sarcasm, quite often. He applied uh, some of the most imaginative expressions to himself. Starting with, uh, you know, what are you, who are you? Uh, and when he said he's neither a, neither a god, nor an angel, nor a human. You know, denying you're a human may be, you know, normal in India, but... You know, these days, it wouldn't get you far, right? And saying, no, I'm not human, I'm awake, which is something totally different. Then when we go to not just the uh, visual arts, but the literary uh, creativity of the Buddhist uh, tradition, the scriptures, generally called either sutra or tantra, are, you know, especially the main ones, are amazing uh, literary achievements. Definitely products of, of an exuberant creativity, not of some kind of reductive, systematic, you know, table kind of column and uh, mind, but very, very, um, at times even quite wild in its expression. If you, if you don't just read, if you allow yourself to imagine what is being described, then it becomes really uh, 
really rich. And other arts through the Buddhist history, such as painting, sculpture, drawing, architecture, and especially ritual practices, which are kind of a theater that, or, you know, the kind of Hollywood of, of that era, which integrates all arts, metallurgy, you know, painting, woodwork, dance through gesture, singing through uh, chanting and recitation, everything, impersonating uh, non-self or deity. All these things are part of ritual. And all these arts have developed alongside the literary tradition. So the influence of literary or the influence of textual and contextual arts uh, was going both ways. So when you read that the Sutra and Tantra, you find actually a, a huge catalog of these other arts or, or traces of these other arts. And when you look at these other arts, you actually find illustration of situations from Sutras and Tantras. So it's like mirroring, you know, the physical arts and the literary arts mirroring each other. In the whole world and, and in, in, all, in all cultures, one, one thing standing for another is a basis of symbolism and language. There, there could be no language without uh, one, one thing standing for another, right? A word stands for something, expresses something, whether written or spoken. And a, a, a sign or an icon or a symbol also stands for something. So that's universal. What is specific about Buddhist symbolism, Buddhist language, and Buddhist art is that, perhaps unique, I'm, I'm you know, I'm no expert in, in, uh, uh, even in, even in Buddhist art, much less in other sacred art around the world, but as far as I know, uh, empty form is very, very particularly a Buddhist kind of thinking about symbols and language in general, so that each symbol even this uh, Greek-influenced Gandharan, and Gandhara, that's where basically pa Pakistan, Afghanistan, and that, that part of uh, former larger India is today. Um, when I look at the depiction of uh, the historical Gautama Buddha like this, then there is a sense of vibrant presence there, if you just open to it. And that vib vibrant presence com comes from two, two aspects coming together. One is the uh, form aspect, which is, you know, the material, the form, the actual contour. And the other is the empty aspect, which is the space occupied by the form and also the surrounding space. The two spaces being totally equivalent. The same, just an openness. So... For the Buddhist, this is not like for the Greeks a symbol that stands for another thing. Okay? So for the Greeks, a symbol is one thing, and what it presents is the other thing. There's a duality between the uh, presented and the representation. For Buddhists, however, the, what's, what's presented and the presentation itself... Uh, fuse, because the symbol is empty, it's a gateway to what is presented. So you're actually looking at the Buddha. It's not a statue. 
you know, it's kind of trippy. It's not a statue of a dead man that lived 2,400 years ago. And it's not out there either. You're actually looking at the mirror. So that's a Buddhist idea of symbol and language. You're always looking at the mirror. Whether you recognize the semblance or you say, oh, no, that's not me. That's a different story. Yeah. Okay, so some, some examples. This is a different mirror. Some examples from the Buddhist methods would be that, that harness imagination quite directly. One example is the contemplation of death, especially my own death. I don't think you can contemplate that without imagining, right? So another example is the four immeasurables. That doesn't work easily without imagining. And another example is remembering Buddha, or often translated as recollection of Buddha, which is basically envisioning Buddha in front, above, around, inside, or as oneself, depending on the method. Every single Buddhist school uh, has used and continues to use the method of remembering Buddha or imagining Buddha, imaging Buddha, however you want to call it. And the method has been and continues to be useful for, for you know, so many people. Now, while early Buddhism uh, was aniconic, that's the kind of a name for it, meaning without icons, it very soon uh, developed an art form. And uh, as, as Buddhist uh, history uh, shows, Buddhism became a very iconic tradition. So that even in the Theravada school of southern Buddhism, the 5th century uh, master Buddha Gosha uh, noted that there are four appropriate objects of devotion. The most senior member of Sangha, or the community, the Bodhi tree, where the Buddha woke up, uh, the image of a Buddha, and finally a stupa. And all those four are representations or stand-ins, if you wish, or substitutes for Buddha. So the fact that you're not around, you know, with a living fully awake, uh, uh, non-human <laughs> being, uh, doesn't mean that there aren't stand-ins at, at each and every step. Even in the tradition that, uh, you know, according to most uh, scholars, is the least iconic, which is the, the Southern Buddhism. And then in, in Mahayana, there are many, many Buddhas, many Bodhisattvas, each with their own uh, deportment, uh, each with their own... Uh, uniforms or, or, you know, dresses of various styles, each with their own gesture, vow, samadhi, mantra, whatnot. And uh, it's impossible to say in Mahayana which comes first. Uh, you, you know, a, 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 a image captured in a, in a painting or sculpture or the voice captured in a sutra. Those, those two always go together. So if you are 
a textual kind of person if you read better by uh, reading. Uh, sorry, if you learn better by reading. It doesn't mean that you should you know, forget that there is a picture that goes with the text. And if you're a visual kind of person that learns better by watching, it doesn't mean that you can forget that there is a text going with the picture. And if you are a somatic person, you can always dance with a sutra in your hand in front of a picture. <laughs> so, you know, all these different uh, streams come together in, in, in an imaginative uh, cultivation. In Vajrayana, then again, you know, there's a vision of, of countless Buddhas. Uh, in the ritual, one intones dharmic syllables and does certain actions. And all these come together where the practitioner, the art, and the raw experience uh, make one, one whole without an outside. So these will be the examples uh, in the tradition. Let's move on to the third point. This is a Redon, a French artist, I believe it's late 19th century, and it's one of his Buddha paintings. Uh, according to the uh, British teacher Sangharakshita, the Western culture has seen several uh, iconoclasms, which basically means image destructions. The first one by the Christian tradition wiping out pagan imagery and pagan gods and pagan rituals, sometimes uh, subverting them, dominating them, changing their nature, like Christmas, for example. But we only have the tree, you know, we don't have the actual dance around it anymore. Um, and then the other iconoclasm by the Protestant Reformation, where whatever was left of imagination within Christianity was pretty much condemned as, uh, you know, devil's work, like, you know, some kind of fancy, typical for Catholics. And uh, then the third iconoclasm was rationalism, which took the, you know, the last remaining uh, traces of imagination and, and myth and basically turned it into entertainment or pathology. So if, it's, if it isn't funny, it's sick, basically, right? And thus, you know, once deeply meaningful images became cliches, like uh, pathetic, you know. We're not taking it seriously, right? And we as Western Buddhists, uh, I'm sorry if someone here isn't a Western Buddhist, I'm not including you, uh, you know, kind of forcefully. But we as Western Buddhists, we have a very uh, rich imaginative legacy, but uh, our images are mostly gutted of uh, power, of their own power. So we have to kind of keep reminding ourselves, is this powerful? And then kind of bring the power back to the image. Because images have become pretty much silent for us. If we're not really cultivated and educated to reclaim this resonance. But not just in the West. Now modernity uh, spread around the globe. So even in the traditional Buddhist countries, uh, the question is now valid. How do we imagine Buddha today? For uh, modern uh, or even worse, postmodern Asian practitioner, you know, the traditional uh, 
presentations are um, you know, far from adequate. Uh, you just talk to them and you learn that in the first five minutes. And in the Western art, on the other hand, we have a huge accumulation of masterpieces, but they are so historically uh, saturated that we kind of shy from using their, them for our own purpose. Um, and creating masterpieces, uh, again, at this point in history, it's pretty um, complicated, you know, pretty difficult, maybe. Uh, later, I ask John to tell me why. Uh, so, uh, what, is, what is left of the imaginative uh, modes of expression is being commodified, turned into some kind of business or uh, some kind of product, so that uh, symbols become just glyphs, you know, just forms on the wall, like a graffiti art. And those become very soon unintelligible, and then kind of trivial. So you can, you can use the Buddha uh, in any form, especially traditional form, as furniture. You know, and not being bothered by Buddhists, you know, who find it strange. Uh, not just in the West, you know, people do it in the East also. Jap Japanese people have been doing it for more than 100 years. Furniture Buddha. So it's not just about uh, tattoos, you know, on tourists who have been expelled from Sri Lanka. It's, it's, it goes much deeper than that. Um, so uh, for people in the past, uh, Buddhas and Bodhisattvas uh, were first and foremost a, a kind of vibrant presence. Nothing animistic, you know, nothing primitive. And only secondly, symbols. Only secondly, some kinds of presentation. Now, for modern people, even for those among us who follow traditional teachings, uh, these deities or these figures are, first of all, symbolic archetypes. And only then, and only for some, vibrant presences. So that's a kind of fact. And it's, it, it's, it's a problem, definitely. Uh, we start with received images as babies, kids, uh, teenagers. This is Banksy. It's called uh, Injured Buddha. But we can't really go on with received images. We have to create or we have to give birth to a Buddha within our own mind, within our own heart. Uh, so each of us, and hopefully together, we need to rediscover how Buddha appears to us in a way that is, as I said, uh, powerful. Um, when there is a symbolic gap due to culture or age in which we live, then we have to start afresh, from nothing, from scratch. And that's where uh, what Catherine mentioned, the basic openness comes into play. And from that basic openness, we'll look for sounds and sights, acts and attitudes and settings that invoke the qualities of presence and wakefulness. And this is probably the important role for communities, you know, for Sangha to, to become some sort of like an incubator or a fertile ground for an aesthetic culture, not just for sitting, 
but also for looking and listening and feeling how it affects us. Um, so, for Christianity, for example, there is a notion of imago dei, also used in, in, in Judaism and Sufism. It's, it's a notion according to which humans are created in God's image and likeness. And without drawing too strong a parallel with, with Buddhism, in particular teachings on Buddha nature, the image of Buddha is also a mirror of human deep potentials. So there's a, there's a kind of a parallel there. And if we are leaning into our own amazement and wonderment, then we can certainly seek out, create and cultivate vivid images of Buddha that make sense to us. Now, if I want to offer something as an example, you may close your eyes and listen. It's a piece of music. And see what arises in your body. There's an actual Buddha behind uh, this famous actor. You can't see it. Can you? Well, the point is, whether it's rice or bread, it's important that we feed our you know, imagination with good quality stuff. It doesn't matter if it's east or west. 
Uh, and I submit to you the three points I've tried to cover a little bit for your further reflection. Imagination is an important aspect of practice. Tradition gives us good examples of the creative process. And the materials are there in abundance. We don't quite know how to use them. Thank you. After nearly a year in private beta, the Buddhist Geeks Network is now open for any independent practitioners who want to engage in interdependent practice. You can find out more about the Buddhist Geeks Network by visiting BuddhistGeeks.network. And if you'd like to join the community and join us in regular social meditation practice or other events that we host there in the network, all freely offered you're very welcome to do so, again, by visiting BuddhistGeeks.network. Love to see you there.